So I'd like to introduce Ruth Canning, who is Marie Curie International Research Fellow with the School of History at UCC and the School of Canadian Irish Studies at Concordia University in Montreal. Ruth is a historian of early modern Ireland and is particularly interested in the Nine Years' War. She is publishing on the Old English in Early Modern Ireland, The Palesmen and the Nine Years' War, and that's due out next year. And today Ruth is going to talk to us about Hugh O'Neill and the war in the Pale. I'm going to take a slightly different tact from our previous papers. We've heard about the great legend of Hugh O'Neill, and we've heard about how great a military general Hugh O'Neill is. And I'm going to now talk about one of his great failures and his great miscalculations, um, and that is his dealings with the Old English of the Pale. Now, from an early date, Hugh O'Neill, the Earl of Tyrone, had recognized that he would need the support of the Pale's Old English population if he was ever to achieve the overthrow of English authority in Ireland. Without even minimal assistance from the Pale and the southern towns, the Confederates would lack the military and fatal supply system necessary for waging a full-out war. More importantly, lacking the artillery necessary for taking the fortified towns, O'Neill would need at least tacit support from within the Pale if he hoped to oust English government from its Dublin stronghold. Convincing the old English Palesmen to join him, however, would not be an easy task. Now, sorry, this is a map of Leinster. The Pale is within Leinster. It's uh, counties Dublin, Louth, Meath, Westmeath, and Kildare. Now, by the 1590s, the majority of the old Englishmen were conscious of the ever-widening gulf between them and their ancestral English-born brethren. Yet they were still a long way away from conceding to any theory which suggested they now had more in common with their Gaelic-Irish compatriots. Ironically, this was one arena in which the Queen and Hugh O'Neill could agree. But these two enemies, the Old English shared two crucial national characteristics with the Gaelic-Irish, their faith and their fatherland. So the questions I wish to address are why were the Old English of the Pale so important? Why was O'Neill so determined to win them over? And why was the English administration so terrified he might succeed? And more importantly, how did the Old English respond to his propaganda? And how did they behave? And what actions did they take during this war? Now, from the very first effort to exert crown authority in Ireland, the Pale had been the center and strength of the English presence. And its security had always been an overriding concern. The strategic importance of the Pale was twofold. It was the administrative heart of Ireland, where, for the moment anyway, English authority reigned supreme. It was also the hub of domestic production and supply, and it was therefore necessary for, the, for, the, for sustaining the English administration and the army. In fact, the importance of the Pale is probably best illustrated through contemporary allegory. Secretary Fenton frequently likened the Pale to the heart, um, whereas the provinces were its limbs. Like a body, Ireland's English administration could survive the loss of a gangrenous limb or two, like Ulster or Connacht, but it could not survive without its heart, palpitating though it may have been. So in times of crisis, when the army was weak, when rebellion raged throughout the provinces, and when rebels threatened the pale, the administration's primary concern was like that of a field surgeon. Keep the heart beating and sever the limbs, because without the first, there was no hope of salvaging the rest. Now, it was clear to all Crown administrators that without this precious foothold, English rule could not survive in Ireland. Yet it was not England which provided the equipment for its protection. This heavy responsibility had been the hereditary obligation of the Pale's old English population. 
Since the introduction of English rule, these descendants of Ireland's original Anglo-Norman conquerors had led a highly militarized existence. They did not constitute a standing army per se, but they did provide a defensive military zone or a, a, a military frontier. As the old, English the old English nobility and gentry maintained private armies to defend and expand their lordships, and although they occasionally rose against the crown over some perceived grievance, they usually acted on its behalf by taking responsibility for raising the forces necessary to respond to localized threats. In addition to these permanent retinues, their tenants were required to perform military services according to tenures or according to sort of rules dictated by statute. Sorry. Um, now these, the, they also, they, this, these, these um, participation, the, their requirements, their military requirements were to participate in hostings. And these have been a regular occurrence over the years. This was rising out the men to come up to the border and they would, they would sort of form an army and it would be launched for about 40 days. Now the purpose of these martial undertakings was to defend the Pale from marauding Gaelic neighbours and protect the Pale's land, the lives, lands and goods of the Pale's inhabitants. War was a common affair in 16th century Ireland. Contemporary sources sometimes record two or three unrelated wars in the space of a single year. Yet these conflicts were usually small in scale and the product of dynastic or territorial disputes between a few semi-autonomous lordships. As David Edwards has asserted, no lord, no matter how powerful, had the capacity to continue long-range warfare year after year. As a result, these earlier conflicts were short-lived and the mandatory 40-day service sufficed. But in the 1590s, when Hugh O'Neill and the Confederates challenged the English Crown's right to the island of Ireland, the nature and consequences of border defence changed dramatically. This was no short-term disruption of life like Gaelic grading of years past. This was a long, drawn-out war in which soldiers had to be constantly ready for battle and the country prepared to meet their needs. Within a very short time, the Ulster Rebellion had engulfed the provinces. But it was the threat opposed to the Pale which made it so worrisome, because it was only through the Pale, and specifically Dublin, that one could hope to control Ireland. As early as 1594, Sir George Crewe warned that O'Neill was fully aware of Dublin's strategic importance, being the only place where the deputy and the council make their abode, where the munition is kept, where the records of the realm are remaining, and in neighbourhood to England. He warned, let us not think that O'Neill and his allies are so foolish since all these commodities by their coming to Dublin will attend them. But the Pale had become a serious strategic problem, not least of all because of the administration's determination to retain fortified outposts like Monaghan and Eskillen and Carrickfergus. These holdings in Ulster, that gangrenous limb, demanded constant reinforcements and supply convoys, which usually required the deployment of the army's entire strength. This created an enormous problem because these relief convoys had to be dispatched from the Pale, thereby leaving the heart unguarded. Campaigning outside Leinster also rendered the Pale vulnerable to attack, and so administrators had to resign themselves to either a defensive war, abandoning isolated holdings and efforts to pursue the enemy in his own territory, or take the perilous offensive course in the hope of hunting down and eliminating the enemy before his assault on the undefended Pale. Striving to solve this technical problem, Numerous military reform treatises were penned during the period, and notwithstanding a sincere desire to preserve remote forts, the author's recommendations concerning pale defences were always of the utmost importance. Most reform proposals advocated the erection of garrisons along the pale frontier, purposely stipulating that these were to be manned by English companies. In theory, the idea was solid. 
However, the reality was that the English, the English army was either too weak to provide adequate defense or too preoccupied with pursuing insurgents in other regions to bother manning the frontier. As every Lord Deputy invariably discovered, the, the English forces at their disposal were insufficient for the task at hand. They were unable to protect the Pale and simultaneously confront the enemy. Faced with this dilemma, it became apparent that if English officials wished to campaign further abroad, they would have no alternative but to rely on the Palesmen to defend the seat and heart of English authority in Ireland. And so it was the Palesmen who were principally responsible for Pale defences during the Nine Years' War. But it was desperation which had driven the administration to rely on them, not trust in their allegiances or respect for their traditional military role. In fact, it was doubts about the Palesmen's loyalties which heightened administrative fears about the Pale security. As fearsome a threat as Hugh O'Neill posed, it was a seemingly two-faced two political and religious behavior of the old English inhabitants of the Pale that really caused great concern. And by no means was old English loyalty beyond reproach. Although they had repeatedly declared the very notion of a Gaelic-Irish partnership anathema, the reality was that similar alliances had taken place in the recent past. Indeed, during the risings of Viscount Baltinglass and William Nugent, it was the Old English who had drawn the Gaelic-Irish into their fight. These uprisings were quashed severely, and rather than extinguishing political and economic resentment, the government's response may have actually hardened attitudes within the pale, especially amongst those affected by the harsh penalties of confiscation and execution. But while the Palesmen had grown more indignant, they had also become more closeted in their criticisms. As Fenton worried in 1596, the nobility of the Pale seemed to be discontented, but touching the causes, they are close and private to themselves, which makes me doubtful of further hidden matter than I dare aim at. Their undisclosed but obvious dissatisfaction made it impossible to determine how they would react to O'Neill's Catholic nationalist overtures. And considering common ground had been found in the early 1580s, it was conceivable that common ground could be found again in the 1590s. At first, it was the religious card which posed the greatest danger. Not only had the majority of Old English Palesmen refused to conform to the English Protestant Church, but they had actually become even more committed to their Catholic faith. O'Neill seized on this, and from 1596 forward, he demanded that they take a stand for the Catholic Church. He chided those who refused, including Lord Barry, to whom he railed, your impiety to God, cruelty to your soul and body, and tyranny to your followers and country are inexcusable and intolerable. You separated yourself from the unity of Christ, his mystical body, the Catholic Church. He backed up these admonishments with threats of excommunication, a power he so desired from the papacy. And while he vainly awaited that authority, which he actually never did receive, he continued to urge them to fight for Christ's Catholic religion and God's just cause, warning them of the torments awaiting them in hell if they did not. In the meantime, and just for good measure, he also threatened physical violence in this world and the destruction of their lands, basically a premature purgatory, if you will. <laughs> now, as the war dragged on, and these are his articles, these are the list of demands he's going to make to the crown, this is his propaganda, and it, it, is, it is geared specifically towards the Palesmen. As the war dragged on, O'Neill's propaganda machine grew in scope and sophistication. Undoubtedly, his religious crusade tempted some contemporaries, but he would have to expand the grounds of his appeal if he hoped to extend agitation beyond Ulster. Hoping to motivate the Old English to join the Gaelic Irish in a fight against foreign heresy, he and his clerical allies increasingly stressed the common bonds of religion and native land. 
O'Neill's claim to a Catholic crusade began to evolve into more clearly defined national ideology steeped in the concepts of faith and fatherland. This two-pronged approach of defending the national religion and the ancestral homeland provided O'Neill with a wider and more inclusive base on which to appeal to Ireland's inhabitants. Fatherland ideology, which naturally appealed to the Gaelic Irish, was employed to establish that the Palesmen also had a vested interest in the socio-political and geographical landscape of Ireland. As such, place of birth was emphasized above bloodline origin in a plea to convince them that they too had a responsibility to protect Ireland. By doing so, O'Neill portrayed his rebellion as a national one, which transcended traditional ethnic boundaries, while advertising himself as the only solution for the rehabilitation of a blended Irish Catholic nation. This is the kind of thing that O'Fuelen really liked um, to pick up on and use. Now, even with all this nationalist rhetoric, O'Neill realized that an alliance with the Palesmen would not be easily achieved. He was, however, shrewd enough to exploit every possible opportunity which might convince the Old English that it was in their best interest to align themselves with the Confederacy. He therefore tailored his rhetoric to appeal to them in terms which played upon their insecurities, political exclusion, social displacement uh, by the English newcomers, and the seizing of their lands and religion. These issues would become central features in a patriotic platform which was designed to include all Irish natives, be they Gaelic Irish or Old English. In doing so, O'Neill would have to make the case that Ireland would be better off once liberta liberated from English overlordship. Thus, his propaganda and communications strove to discredit the current regime. He repeatedly denounced the treachery and broken promises of English administrators and the betrayal of powerful but loyal Gaelic Irish and Old English lords. He railed against recent land confiscations and newly erected English plantations. He demanded the full restoration of ancestral lands and possessions and pressed for the re-establishment of all hereditary privileges once enjoyed by Ireland's elite. O'Neill purposely focused on Old English fears about their declining position of authority by declaring that it was the Crown's intention to suppress the Irish nobility and replace it with a newly installed Protestant Englishman. Without a doubt, he had hit a chord because experience had already convinced many Palesmen that this process was already underway. As much as the Crown may have wanted to contest it, numerous political treatises penned by Englishmen during this period had explicitly recommended the destruction of Ireland's native elite as the only means to achieving a reconstructed English society in Ireland. By harnessing all these grievances, O'Neill had effectively invented a political platform which he could use in combination with religious concerns as the honorable rationale for his revolt. Now for Crown administrators, this all posed a very worrisome challenge and officials were confident that the moment O'Neill's rebellion received papal endorsement, the Palesmen would be prepared to support him. It was also felt that if the rebels gained territory within the Pale or its environs, many of the Crown's traditional supporters would quickly fall away. The religious cause and the rebels' impressive progress was a dangerous combination, but add to this the much-anticipated arrival of Spanish aid, and the consequences could be fatal. Should Dublin fall to the rebels uh, and their Spanish allies, Carew was persuaded that the papists and malcontents of the English Pale will not be displeased because I know not any city or almost village in all of Ireland, but in affection is Spanish. As the war unfolded, very few of these negative predictions actually materialized, yet it did little to temper official pessimism. In fact, 
By the spring of 1601, Lord Deputy Mountjoy was given to assert that the baseness and dishonesty of the English-Irish inhabitants hath been the greatest hazard of this kingdom. So what was uh, the Old English response? Now this is a, an excerpt from O'Neill's 1599 proclamation. And so there were Old Englishmen who respond to this and respond to his ideology. Now the testimonies of those, who of those Old Englishmen who rejected O'Neill's overtures are telling. Those who offered him written responses averred that they did not believe their spiritual interests were under attack since they had not felt the sharp hand of correction in religious matters. As Lord Barry declared, her highness hath never restrained me from matter of religion, and I have settled myself never to forsake her. Sir Theobald Dillon offered O'Neill a very similar answer. Her majesty never troubled me for my conscience, and she's given me more revenue than my ancestors. Dillon went even further to exclaim, do you think that I would forsake so royal a master and my natural prince for your sudden coming into Dillon's country? You must think them to be angels that wished you to send me such a letter. More interesting, though, is that a number of palesmen challenged the sincerity of O'Neill's religious and nationalist cause. During negotiations in the autumn of 1599, the Baron of Delvin criticized O'Neill's claim to a Catholic crusade. He instructed his commissioners to inform O'Neill of his irritation at the unprovoked attacks on his lands as a warning um, and the attacks on his tenants. He also said you must remind him that if he pretends his actions are for the preservation and advancement of the Catholic religion, all the inhabitants of the English Pale, and especially myself, were Catholics when he was not thought to be one. Delvin further argued that the Palesmen were also better informed than O'Neill on church doctrine, and they could never find in scripture, general counsel, or any other authority that subjects ought to carry arms against the anointed Christian prince for religion or any other cause, and especially against so gracious a prince as we have. Crucially, though, a number of Palesmen saw right through O'Neill's persuasive talents. As Sir Patrick Barnwall informed Sir Robert Cecil, O'Neill is acquainted with the condition of our estate, our defects and wants of means. He useth this as a most forcible and potent persuasion and frameth it for the present as may best serve his, his drift and his own purpose. The Palesmen doubted O'Neill's nationalist agenda as much as his religious one, and they feared the potential repercussions of an Irish victory for the future of their community. Though Catholic, they were part of an English political system and in their minds, at least, they continued to represent a foreign colonial power, even though that foreign colonial power did not fully recognize them as such. Many Palesmen shared Barnwall and Delvin's skepticism about O'Neill's promises should they join him. According to Delvin, his survival and prosperity depended wholly on the crown, because as a Catholic loyalist, he embodied everything O'Neill detested, and he could never hope to be favorably treated by him. Considering one of O'Neill's stated objectives was the restoration of all confiscated lands to their original proprietors, it was unlikely that any of the Palesmen would gain a share, since all land had at one time been possessed by the Gaelic Irish. In fact, it is possible that they could have lost land rather than gained it if O'Neill had stuck to his utopian objective. Besides challenging O'Neill's moralistic motives, many Palesmen also drew on a long-established tradition of disdain for Gaelic Irish culture intimating that to combine with the Gaelic Irish would be an insult to all that they and their ancestors had achieved against the native barbarians. For the majority of Palesmen, this sense of cultural superiority negated the possibility of a pan-Irish alliance, even if it was to counter the onslaught of English heresy. 
So as far as most palesmen were concerned, the overlordship of a heretical English queen was still better than that of a tyrannical Gaelic chief. And as one group of, uh, group of palesmen said in 1598, although the allurements of this unhappy time did offer provocations to carry unstayed minds astray, we are as unremovable in our loyalties, steadfast and constant, continually accepting all calamities, miseries, and mischiefs whatsoever, rather than to be disloyal. Now, of course, these are just words, and the Pales would have to put their money where their mouths were if they wanted to convince the English crown that they were loyal to the queen and that they could rise above their Irish birth and their Catholic faith. And the most effective demonstration of this would be to support the military enterprise against Hugh O'Neill, and that would be to continue their tradition of participating in hostings and joining forces with the army. Now, hostings were a routine affair throughout the war, but as it dragged on, fewer and fewer were actually officially recorded. By the war's closing years, unless it was to criticize defensive proceedings, the state papers do not afford this vital old English contribution much attention. It is possible that Crown officials took this task for granted as their duty, or maybe they were reluctant to dole out credit for a community they did not entirely trust. Whatever the case, the early stages of this conflict offer a sample illustration of the frequency and duration of pale hostings, and because rebel encounters along the pale frontier increased in, in frequency as the war carried on, it is expected that these hostings actually also increased. They're just not recorded. And during an eight-month period between January and September 1595, the Dublin administration called upon the Palesmen for at least four separate risings out. The number of men raised and the duration of service is rarely explicit, but the combined evidence from these hostings clearly demonstrates that the Palesmen had far exceeded their annual duty of 40 days' service. In fact, the first hosting, called in January, lasted two months. And though the contribution of each shire is not explicit, Counties Kildare and Dublin and the city of Dublin each volunteered 100 footmen, armed and paid at their own charges. The second hosting was called before the first even ended. And though the numbers are not clear, um, County Meath was directed to raise 400 men, thus indicating that this operation was a very substantial undertaking. Then in late June, the administration called on the Palesmen to defend the borders for another 30 days, with at least 700 foot. And then the final hosting of 1595 also happened to be the largest. This time, the Palesmen were ordered to assemble 1,000 foot and 300 horse, and these were to serve for 30 days at the expense of the country. Now, on each one of these occasions, English officials complained that the Palesmen had not adequately complied with their commitment in men, time, money, or supplies. It is therefore necessary to establish some gauge by which to judge the Palesman's proceedings, and so reference is made to a joint report from the Irish Council in September 1595. They state that of the requested 1,000 foot and 300 horse, the Earl of Kildare had shown up with four foot companies and 100 horse, and Ormond had arrived with 200 foot and 80 horse. By comparison, the Lord Deputy had arrived with three English companies and 170 horse. Now, it's important to note that even though these are labeled as English companies, anywhere between 20 to 35% of those forces were actually native-born. They're either Old English or Gaelic Irish recruited into the army for either pay or duty. Um, so even that contingent that is brought by the, by the English is actually quite Irish. So there is no denying that in terms of the hosting, the Palesmen had failed to raise the number of men demanded, and there are infinite numbers of reasons to justify why, like being recruited into the English army or having served in other hostings, having died in battle or been injured, or being too poor to serve again. 
But the fact remains that the Palesmen's contribution to this project was still at least double that of the English themselves. What is more, all of these native servitors personally bore the expenses of their, of their military contribution. So complaints about the Palesmen aside, on this occasion and on many others, they were the mainstay of Pale defense, both physically and fiscally. The fact that the Palesmen were primarily responsible for Pale defenses throughout this war suggests that their contribution to the Crown's military enterprise was a decisive factor in its outcome. At the very least, their defense of the administrative heart preserved English government until Crown forces could successfully subdue the rest of Ireland's limbs. But in addition to military service, the Palesmen also provided equally vital assistance through manual labor, materials, food supplies, finance, and building Crown soldiers in their own homes. Some of this was in accordance with their duties as subjects, but most of this was actually done as a symbol or a sign of their duty, of their allegiance and their patriotism or um, loyalty to the Queen. While the, while the war's drain on English manpower and resources has been acknowledged, uh, the same expenditure of Ireland's resources and manpower has escaped much scrutiny thus far. Yet in spite of the Pale's declining prosperity over the course of this conflict, the unreliability of the English supply system meant that the administration became increasingly dependent on the Palesmen to meet the escalating demands of this conflict and the administration. The need to feed and house a growing number of Crown soldiers precipitated massive resource depletion throughout the entire island. But supply and accommodation demands, as well as the illegal extortions of Crown troops, were more severely imposed on the loyalist population of the Pale than elsewhere. Although the most intense fighting occurred beyond the confines of the Pale, the indigenous populations of other regions were more inclined to join the rebels, especially if they thought these alien intruders were squandering their resources. Thus, because the Pale was the most fertile district in Ireland, and the only region where English authority and government writs were generally obeyed, the administration was inclined to rely more heavily on the Palesmen than any other part of the country. Now, in addition to their tractability, there were a number of other reasons why the Palesmen were particularly hard-pressed during this conflict. Firstly, Dublin was the primary port of disembarkation for thousands of English reinforcements coming into Ireland. And while these soldiers awaited their appointments or muster checks, it fell to the inhabitants of Dublin and its environs to provide them with lodgings and rations. Secondly, because supply problems could trigger mutinous conditions within the army rank and file, Captains and higher military personnel, when stationed in other regions, would actually transfer their troops from these inhospitable regions into the Pale because it was more profitable and there were more resources and people were more inclined to give them food and give up their money when forced to at sort of sword point. Um, usually works. <laughs> Thirdly, this was not a continuous war. Prior to 1599, fighting was intermittent, broken up by truces and inconsistent political and military policies. Numerous cessations entailed withdrawing a large part of the army into the Pale, and during these intervals, the Palesmen were obliged to meet the needs of these forces. Also contributing to the spasmodic nature of the conflict was the need to protect the Pale's agricultural lands. Hoping to preserve Pale crops, some officials recommended negotiating temp temporary ceasefires. This seemed prudent, considering Pale crops were the sustenance of the army, drying grain stacks made easy prey for the pillager, and truces allowed farmers time to reap their crops. But this strategy had consequences, because the Palesmen were now obliged to share their hard-earned labors with the Queen's ravenous army. Finally, the Pale was the heart of Ireland's English dominion, and it was from here that the vast majority of military campaigns were initiated. 
On these occasions, soldiers stationed throughout the country were drawn to Dublin for musters. And during their time in the area, they were quartered on the civilian population. Then, right before the, this army would be dispatched on campaign, it was the palesmen who were required to raise the supplies and raise the finance in order to dispatch this army so that it could go on campaign. Thus, the palesmen shouldered an indeterminately large proportion of the charges necessary for sustaining the Crown's military enterprise during the Nine Years' War. The chronicler, Sir James Parrott, asserted that even an educated approximation of the charges imposed on the palesmen would greatly underestimate the burdens they bore, because the poor English pale did bear many secret and heavy burdens. So in conclusion, um, based on existing evidence, it is clear that the pale was the key to winning this war, and that the key to winning the pale was winning over its old English inhabitants. O'Neill was fully aware of this, but try as he might, he could not shake the overburdened palesmen. He appealed to them directly in terms designed to tug at their spiritual and patriotic heartstrings. But in spite of all administrative fears and suspicions, O'Neill found it an uphill task to, to persuade these dedicated crown servants to defend their homeland from foreign Protestant aggression. Given the state of the crown army, the military supply system, and the administration's finances, it's hard to imagine that the Tudor conquest could have been completed without the impressive support tendered by the palesmen throughout this conflict. Thus, without the pale and the palesmen, it is very unlikely English rule could have survived Tyrone's rebellion, never mind have gained control of the rest of Ireland's gangrenous limbs. Thank you very much. Thanks,